Are you thankful? It's coming Thursday. You know, that's Thanksgiving Day in our country. We recognize that as a day for everybody to be thankful. And typically we don't have to work and we get an opportunity to come together with family. And uh, I hope you take advantage of that opportunity to remember what you're thankful for. You see, if you don't really, if you can't, if you can't put your finger on and spell out what you are thankful for, I wonder if it's really thankful. I wonder if it's really thankfulness. We need to kind of associate that and get that in our mind because then we can be thankful to God for His abundant blessings. And there's things that are more important than being thankful for your car or that nice big screen TV you got. You know, there's things more important than that that we ought to be thankful for. So we're going to we're going to read a, a story of a man who was thankful here in Luke chapter 17. I would encourage you to turn there in your Bible, Luke 17. Uh, we're going to read that story in just a second. I was uh, blessed last night in the Saturday service. I was standing over here and we sang that song, How Great Thou Art. And you could just feel people singing, singing praise to God. And as we were singing that, Pastor Steve Hauser was sitting right behind me and he he leaned forward and he tapped me on, on the shoulder and he said, I was singing that song in a Methodist church the first time the Holy Spirit uh, ministered to me. I think he said first time I felt the Holy Spirit. I was singing that song and he was, was like tears in his eyes when he was telling me that. That song reminded him and he was coming back to that encounter. Okay, let's look at this, at this uh, story here starting in verse 11. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go. Show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, We're not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. This is a great story of victory, of God taking what the enemy meant for evil and turning it into good. The Bible is full of such stories, and the church should be full of such stories. Amen. The enemy meant to undermine us. He meant to trap us. He meant to ensnare us. But what the enemy meant to hurt us, God meant for good. That's what our faith tells us. So this had to be disappointing when this man discovered that he had leprosy. There are disappointing things that happen in our lives. You can't escape it. Sometimes it's disappointing when you go to the doctor for the checkup and he tells you you got something wrong with you. That's disappointing. 
It's disappointing when you check the mailbox and you discover there's a bill there much more than you thought it was going to be. That's disappointing. Things happen in my life that are disappointing. One day last week, I went home for lunch, for lunch break, and my intent was, while I'm eating that sandwich, I'm going to watch Andy Griffith and Barney Fife. And all that was on there was the impeachment hearings. And I was disappointed. Things happen that are disappointing. Having leprosy is disappointing. So I want to share six lessons we learned from this thankful man. Here's number one. They met Jesus standing at a distance. Did you notice that in the, in the scriptures we were reading it? They, were, they met Jesus. He uses that word, met him. At a distance, he's way over there, and they kept their distance. Now, the first thing I want us to see before we uh, move on to the next point is it says in the New International Version, they, he traveled along the border of Galilee and Samaria. Well, that was a red flag to me because I remember the King James Version says he traveled through the midst of Galilee and Samaria. Now that's a whole other thing. So I wanted to know, okay, one says this, the other says that. I'm going to go to the New American Standard Bible because that is, although it's not quite as readable as the NIV, it's probably the most accurate modern English translation out there. And it says he went between the two countries. So I didn't answer my question. I was still a little confused. So I got out my reference books. I wanted to know, what does the original uh, Greek say that's been translated into these terms? And it's, it's the Greek, it's a co- combination word, dia meso. Dia means through or across. Meso means the middle. So is this saying he went through across the middle of the countries? Or is it saying he walked between the two countries, right through the, between them? It could say either way. But as I reflected on that, and what's the Spirit saying, I felt the Lord say, Jesus walks a fine line between Galilee and Samaria. You see, those three provinces of Israel... And you remember from Sunday school or you remember from looking at the the map in the back of your Bible that Israel in the time of Christ had three provinces. Now the northern province was known as Galilee. That's where Jesus spent most of his time. The southern province is known as Judea. Judea is where Jerusalem was located. And then the province in the center was Samaria. Now, I believe those three provinces reflect three aspects of our lives. Judea is where worship takes place. This is where the sacrifices were offered. People would go to the temple, and this is where they connected with God. That's Judea. Galilee is where the fishermen worked. This is where the vineyards were grown. This is where, this is the the commercial aspect of our lives. And we do all have a commercial aspect of our lives, don't we? I mean, why else do we go to work? To make a paycheck. So that we can buy and sell and survive in this world. 
And then Samaria represents the sinful aspect of our lives. And let me tell you where that comes from. When Babylon overthrew Israel, they took all the influential people. They took the people that had jobs, trades, skills that, were, that had something to offer. And they took them prisoner and they transported them over to Babylon. And then they would take another country they overthrew and transplant, transplant those people over to Israel. So they mixed the people up to take away the incentive of individuals to rally together and revolt against the big empire. You know, fight for the homeland. Because you didn't have a homeland anymore. This disrupted people all over the place. And then later, Israel came back. They would have their freedom and they could come back if they wanted to. And it was the coming back that created a problem. Because, you see, the Jews, during that uh, uh, overthrow where the Babylonians overthrew them, the people that didn't have skilled trades, that didn't have something to offer, were left behind. The people that didn't count, the people that weren't significant, were left behind. And over the years, they intermarried with other religions, which creates a problem. So when the faithful Jews who were marched off to Babylon came back to Israel, they stuck their nose up in the air to the Samaritans because they had intermarried. And over time, the religions got, got blended. They got confused. So it wasn't a pure, even though they were Jews, they weren't pure Jewish. You see, they were intermarried, half-breeds. So the good Jews would have nothing to do with them. This is why every time you see the word Samaria or Samaritan mentioned in the New Testament, it's in a negative context. But Jesus, Jesus would turn these things, what the enemy meant for evil, he would turn it into good. And so you see Jesus talking about the good Samaritan. You see Jesus talking about the good, the good side that God's doing in them. So, Jesus walks a fine line between Galilee, the commercial side, and Samaria, the sinful side, the compromising side. He never does step over into the commercial side. Never, as far as we know, he never got a job because he never needed the money. God just provided for him. And neither did he step over to the sinful side. He walked a fine line. And while he's walking the fine line, these lepers come. And the lepers cry out, have mercy on us. You see, one of the things that a leper had to do was announce their leprosy. They had to announce that they, they had a problem. Would you like to announce your problem? Of course you wouldn't. We try to hide our problem. We don't want everybody to know that. But a leper had to announce, unclean, un I'm unclean over here, watch your step, I'm unclean. That would really do your ego a good job, wouldn't it? Unclean over here, be careful. So he was staying far off because he knew Jesus wouldn't want to make contact with somebody like him. 
So they stood afar off when they cried out, have pity on us. Where were you? How far away from Jesus were you when you first said a sinner's prayer and laid your sin at the cross and asked the Spirit of God to come into your life? How far away were you? I don't know about you, but I wasn't very close. I was way over there because I was convinced in my heart God could not use somebody like me. I was too defiled. I had too much sin in my life. I was too messed up. There's no way God could work through somebody like me. That was my misconception, as I know a whole lot of people have. So the question is, where, where were you when you first met Jesus? How far away were you? In Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39, Peter said, Change your life. Turn to God and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so your sins are forgiven. Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promises targeted to you and your children, but also to all who are far away, whomever, in fact, our Master God invites So no matter how far away you feel you are from God right now and how far you feel like you need to stay, you've just been invited. Invited to come closer. God loves you and he wants to do great things in your life. So the first thing we learn is they met Jesus standing at a distance. Here's the second thing we learn. They made a pitiful plea. Notice what they're saying to the Lord. Have pity on us. Have pity on us. You know what pity means? Feel sorry for us. Did you feel sorry for us? The King James translates that mercy. Have mercy on us. You ask for mercy when you don't have anything to ask for. You don't have any right. You don't have any claim. So he's asking for mercy. All of them are. Have pity. Have mercy on us. That word translated, the Greek word translated pity or mercy is the Greek word el eo. A bunch of vowel sounds in there, but they're all pronounced el eo. And what it means is have compassion. Have compassion on us. You know what compassion is? That's having a feeling of empathy on the inside, enough of a feeling of empathy that you want to get involved in that situation and help solve the problem. You don't want to be a spectator. You want to be help, uh, uh, help in solving the problem. That's having compassion, to feel for someone else's pain, to feel for someone else's problem. Compassion. Compassion is an adjective. Com- compassionate is an adjective describing how a person feels. If we turn that into a verb, it's compassionate. My wife and I had a bit of a discussion last night because she told me there was no such word as compassionate. And I looked it up and I proved to her, there is compassionate. It is a word. It's a verb. And it requires some action. It's not talking about what you feel. Compassionate is talking about what you do. There's a difference between feeling and doing. And so the plea, have mercy on us, is saying, will you compassionate toward us? Will you express this feeling of empathy with us? Will you do something for us? Now notice a a plea like, have pity on us, 
doesn't have a lot of confidence in it. There's not a lot of faith there. It's just saying, will you please empathize? Will you please help us in this situation? Which leads me to ask the question, how much confidence and how much faith did you have when you first came to Christ? My guess is you didn't have a whole lot of confidence. You didn't have a whole lot of faith. You're just asking for some mercy, some expression of empathy. You're asking for God to be somehow involved in your life. Which reminds me of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. It says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When I have a need, I want God to want to step into my life. So I need to come to the throne. I need to talk to God. I need to express faith in God with confidence, with faith. I don't need to see myself as separated. I used to be separated, but I'm not separated anymore. You're not separated anymore. Jesus went to the cross for you so you could have life. Isn't that good news? Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, isn't that good news? All right, here's number three, the third thing we learn. They obeyed the master's voice. He told them what to do, and they acted on it. He said, go show yourselves to the priest. Well, gee, I don't know if we want to do that. We know what the priest's going to do. Can't you lay hands on us? Can't you anoint us with oil? Can't you do some miracle for us right here? No, go show yourself to the priest. That's what I want you to do. He didn't give them much hope. He didn't, he didn't do something for them. He just told them what to do on their own. Go show yourself to the priest. What Jesus is doing is he is expressing the Mosaic law from Leviticus chapter 13. The whole chapter, it's a rather lengthy chapter, and all of chapter 13 has to do with the law of leprosy, where he's basically saying, he's given instruction to the priests, and he says, if any of you, any Israelite, if any of you that are the people of God, you find a sore on your hand or anywhere on your body that's not getting better, and he tells the priest what to do, examine it. And if it's white, you do this. If it's red, you do that. It's a lengthy teaching for the priest on what to do ceremonially. If you, if you look at it and it matches the description of Leviticus 13, then you're to announce to that person they have leprosy. And anybody with leprosy then has to announce they're unclean and be ostracized from everybody else. So you can't be around them. There was the fear of, you know, contamination. Now, for Jesus to say, go show yourself to the priest after reading Leviticus 13 is kind of a hopeless thing. Now, if they see they've got leprosy on their body, if they take it over here to the priest and show it to the priest, what's the priest supposed to do? Announce you unclean. Apparently, they had already done that, and the priest had already announced them unclean. They got leprosy. So what good's it going to do 
for them to go show themselves to the priest again. There are some times in the Word of God, the Bible tells us we should do such a thing, and it doesn't make sense. It's just not logical. What good is that going to do? For Jesus to spit in the mud and make mud out of his saliva in the dust and smear it on a man's eyes and then tell him to go wash it off, it makes no sense. Why put it on in the first place? You see, logically, this doesn't make sense. But when he washed his eyes, he could see. It was in the doing of the word. It was in acting it out. It was in uh, walking the walk that the healing took place and his life was changed. So why is Jesus telling him to go show himself to the priest? That takes us into Leviticus chapter 14 because chapter 14 is the law of healing of leprosy. Chapter 14 says, if anybody sees that the leprosy has been healed, they are to take it to the priest and show themselves to the priest. And the priest will look at it, and if he sees it doesn't line up with the Leviticus chapter 13 definition of leprosy, the priest is then, before he declares them clean, the priest is to take two birds that the man who once had leprosy brings with him as a sacrifice. And he presents the two birds. And the first bird, he's to take a knife and cut its throat and drain the blood out of that bird. What happens to the bird? He dies. Then the priest is to take the second bird and he's to take it over to that basin where the blood from the first bird is and he's to dip that blood Splash that blood all over that bird. And then he's to take that bird outside in the field and set it free. And it flies away. Do you see the two aspects of the cross right there? Jesus went to the cross to shed his blood. He who was innocent paid the price for those of us who are guilty. And those of us who are guilty then washed in the blood of the Lamb by faith are set free to fly free. Thank God for the liberty we have in Christ. Hallelujah. It's the picture of the cross right here in this, in this story, in Leviticus chapter, chapters 13 and 14. So what Jesus is saying is, I want you ten lepers, I want you to go down here and show yourself to the priests so the priest can declare you clean so that the birds can be offered and you can have this visual of being set free. Jesus knew all this. They may not have known it, but he did. James chapter 1, verses 22, 23, and 24 says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. So he says the Word of God is like a mirror. And we look in the mirror, and we look at ourselves, and we see, we see what we look like. And sometimes we, we say, boy, don't I look good? <laughs> and other times we say, 
Oh my goodness, why didn't somebody tell me that thing was hanging out of my nose? (laughs) But as soon as we put the mirror aside, we forget what we just saw. We forget what we, when we see it, we know what we, when we, when we see ourselves in the Word of God, we look and we say, oh my goodness, I'm not like this. I need to change the way I behave. I need to do different than I've been doing. I need to change my way. But as soon as we set it aside, we don't do the changes. That's what he's talking about. you got to be doers of the Word. And so what these ten lepers had to do was they had to go and show themselves to the priest. And it was in the process of going and doing what they were told that they recognized they were clean. They'd been healed already. Which takes us to point number four. He marked that he was healed. He saw. It says one of them, when he saw that he was healed, he saw it. In other words, it was visible. It was evident. People around him could see it. He could take this to the priest and the priest would verify it was clean. He could take this problem to the doctor and the doctor would verify it's not a problem anymore. You've been healed. That lump is gone. What looked like cancer isn't anymore. That's healing. You don't have to be afraid of going to see the doctor when you believe you've been healed. Because it'll be evident. It'll be confirmed. When he saw it, he recognized he was healed. A visible difference. And those of us in this room, if we have met Jesus and we are different people, that should be verified. The people around us should be able to see there's something different. When I first came to Christ, everything turned around for me. And I had some enemies. Because those people I used to go drinking with, all of a sudden they felt guilty. Because I wouldn't go anymore. I wouldn't participate in that that worldly stuff anymore. I just made a decision for me. I don't want to do it. I never shamed them. I just stopped doing it. But it made, my testimony made them feel guilty. So I had some enemies. Here's the fifth thing. We've got to keep moving. He magnified God in the presence of Jesus. Notice it says, he came back. He came back. He was on his way to see the priest, but he turned and he came back. Something happened to him, and he associated the change he's, he's experiencing now with the words of Jesus. He makes that association. This is what thanksgiving is. Thanksgiving is when you associate your blessings with the one who gave the blessings. If you don't see the association, you're not going to give thanks. Giving thanks is making the connection between You gave your life to God, and He made a promise He would intervene and and take care of you, and now you have these blessings in your life. You should associate the blessings with what you did with Jesus, with what Jesus did for you, and come back and give Him thanks. I notice it says, and He was a Samaritan, as if that's a major point, as if that's a big deal in the story. He was a Samaritan. 
Remember what I said about the people with their nose up in the air from Galilee and Judea toward the people in Samaria? They didn't even want to set foot inside Samaria. It was was like a a sin country. They would, from Galilee, uh, they would cross over the Jordan River over into Gentile territory and walk down and back over into Judea rather than set foot in Samaria. And so he tells this story about this one leper who's been healed and puts a smile on everybody's face. And then it says, and he was a Samaritan. And I'm sure everybody's smile just disappeared. Oh, Samaritans, aren't they inherently sinners? Aren't they inherently bad? Yeah, just like us. Inherently sinners, but born again. Inherent sinners with, a, with this natural sin ability down inside of us so we cannot trust ourselves. And yet, filled with the Spirit of God. This is the story. This is the story he's laying out here. He was a Samaritan. So Jesus says to the man who comes back, Where are the other nine? Weren't there ten lepers? that went to show themselves to the priest, and didn't they all get cleansed on the way? Why has only one come back to give thanks? It's like, it's like this is a prophetic message. It's like out of every 100 people who make a decision for Christ somewhere along their spiritual journey, only 10% the tithe, 10% come back. Well, what of the other 90 who said a sinner's prayer, who received the Holy Spirit, whose sin was paid for? What about the other 90%? They're off outside the church someplace, fulfilling their hobby, doing their thing, saying the church is full of hypocrites. I don't want to go down there be one of them. Found some excuse to not connect with the brothers and sisters in the family of faith. Find some, some reason to not submit to the spiritual authority that God has placed in the church of Jesus Christ. There's a problem with that. But I think this is prophetic because it pretty well describes the church in America today. So Jesus says, go show yourself to the priest but only one recognized who the priest was and came back to see him only one I'm sure the others showed themselves to the priest and were declared clean and then they went on about their business but only one made the connection between Jesus Christ and his healing and came back to give thanks I don't know about you but I want to be the one I want to be in the in the 10% 10% category. I want to be in, in that, uh, the, the least that come back. I want to go down the narrow path, not the wide path with everybody else. Amen. And I know you do as well. Here's number six. And we'll wrap this up. He arose and departed a different man. He was different than he came. He was different. He was afar off because he felt like he had no claim on God. He was afar off. But now he's come back and drawn close. 
because he doesn't have leprosy anymore. The leprosy's been dealt with. So Jesus looks at him and he says, Arise and go, for your faith has made you whole. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has healed you. His faith, isn't he the guy from a long distance off saying, have pity on me? What kind of faith is that? That's not faith. That's not confidence to just ask for some pity, some kind of mercy. But Jesus looks at him now and he says, it was your faith that made you whole. My faith? What kind of faith did I have? You had enough faith to follow the word of the Lord, to do what he told you to do. When he told you to go show yourself to the priest, you got up off your behind and you did it. You did what he told you to do. And it was in the doing of the word that it became reality. It was in the obeying of the word that God's presence showed up in his life. God's blessing, God's favor was in his life as he obeyed. Where did he get that faith? He just decided to do it. He just decided to obey. So you may feel like you don't have a lot of confidence with God. Why would God be interested in somebody like you? I mean, God knows, God knows your history. God knows your past. He knows what, you're, what you've been through. He knows that. But yet he wants to say to you, it's your faith that sets you free. Right. And how do we demonstrate that faith? We just obey. We just do what he tells us. We just get into this book. We read it looking for something God will say to us on what we need to do with our life or problems we have, the difficulties we have. We just read it. And when we see God gives some direction on what somebody needs to do, I apply it to myself and I do it. I walk in obedience. I do what he tells me to do. I go show myself to the priest if he says to do that. I go wash the water off my eyes if he tells me to do that. I just obey. Sometimes we find that hard because dogs obey, right? And we're not dogs. But he's given us a key to the kingdom. How to get the power of God at work in our life is to just obey. Just do what he tells us to do. And as we do it, blessings flow into our life. Doors open up. Obstacles move out of the way. God teaches us things. God helps us meet the right people, the right connections. I am now 70, none of your business, years old. And I have seen over that time period, I have seen what I'm telling you to be reality. It doesn't just work for the preacher. It works for any believer. We just have to change what we do. And as we change what we do, we see the favor of God in our life and great things happen. Amen. Let's stand together. This Thursday's Thanksgiving. Chances are you're going to meet in somebody's home, maybe grandma's, maybe mom's house. You're going to sit, you're going to sit in somebody's home. You're going to have a, a meal. And I, I want to encourage you. Let's turn it into Thanksgiving. Amen. We know what hogs do at the trough. You know, no, not, there's not a single pig stops and thanks God for the food. <laughs> well, let's put a spiritual twist to it. 
I want to encourage you when you're sitting at your table, if nobody else will do it, I want to encourage you, speak up before everybody digs in and say, is it okay if I lead us in a prayer? Prayer of thanksgiving. And then when everybody bows their head, you reach in your pocket and you pull out the index card with some notes on it of what you're going to say. And you pray and you lead your family in being thankful to God. And put the card away real quick when you say amen before anybody sees. And you can be a leader in your family and leading people to come back to the cross, to come back to God, come back to thankfulness. And I really believe everybody at that table is going to appreciate you doing it because that's what everybody knows that's what Thanksgiving's about. We're just too, too busy taking care of ourselves to realize how we need to be thankful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters, God, as we're coming up on Thanksgiving season, help us to be like this thankful man, to remember the source of our blessings, to come back and say thank you, to come back and give appreciation to God in the presence of the Son of God. Help us to keep coming back, God, because that's how you renew us. And Father, if there's, if there's a, a couple people here this morning that haven't yet made a decision for you. They've not yet uh, entered into a covenant relationship. I pray that this would be the day when they would, they would just lay it down before you and say a prayer like this. Heavenly Father, I believe in you. I believe in Jesus, and I believe in your Spirit. Father, I ask you to forgive my sin because my sins are many. I ask you to send your Holy Spirit into my life so I would have the power to live over above my sin. I ask that you would lead me and guide me down the paths you want me to take. Show me in the Word what you want me to do and what my steps should be and how I should walk and how I should behave. Teach me these things, God, because I'm committing my life to you right now. I lay all my sin at the cross. I pick up the spiritual life and I want to live for you. I want to honor you. Show me how to do that, and I'll do my best to be faithful. I want to be part of the 10%, not the 90. So God, I give my life to you. In Jesus' name. Lord, help us to say a prayer like that again and again to renew our covenant relationship. And Lord, live through us and help us to live a life of, uh, that's an example of how your grace and favor works in the life of a sinner. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.